Isaiah chapter 10 starts on page 574 of your pew Bible. And I I really, really recommend you look on today if you don't normally do it. Because Isaiah 10 is kind of a tough text. It's, it's, It's a little weird. It's a little heavy. And it's a little scattered. It's a little scattered. Um, The section breaks don't really line up very well, or maybe we could say it this way. The chapters would have been better put differently than they are with chapter 9 ending after chapter 10, verse 4, where there's a complete shift. So it starts a new chapter in chapter 10, verse 4. So the first four verses in in chapter 10 all belong with what came before it. And then there's a whole other kind of section shift that takes place through it where from 10 to verse 4 to uh, chapter 11, you have a condemnation of Assyria. Okay, I'll, we'll come back to that. But you have that taking several different poetic forms. From this guy over here says this, and then it's like a monologue that this guy would have said, to then what I, God, am going to say back to him, to what I'm going to do to him, to how it's going to impact Judah and the remnant. And each of those is his own little section where it kind of, it goes on a bit. And so it, it, in that sense, it sort of changes perspective. It's hard to read a story from multiple perspectives. Like you start chapter one, it's one guy. Chapter two, it's someone else. And maybe you like stories like that, but they tend to get really complex really fast. Yeah. And that's sort of how chapter 10 reads. Okay. Today, we're not going to go through all of it. But I do want to go through what we heard read a moment ago, and I want you to see it on the page in that section it belongs in, all right? So if you look at chapter 10, verse 1 on page 574, again, verses 1 through 4 are more woe from chapter 9, which is all about how Jerusalem, even though it's wealthy, even though it has the appearance of true religion, is going to be punished by God for not trusting in him. This comes in the form of King Ahaz, who sets up all this idolatry. And so God then punishes the idolatry by sending this northern nation of Assyria, who Judah is relying on to help them, to actually conquer them up to the gates of Jerusalem. And chapter 9 goes through a bunch of what that's going to look like, and each of them gets worse. And, and then after each one, there's this refrain. Do you remember this? Um, it's at the end of verse 4 in chapter 10. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. We, we heard that last week. Okay, So that is God so angry, he's not going to stop till he does what he says he's going to do to Jerusalem. That's all part of the story of Ahaz's fall and Hezekiah's repentance, Hezekiah being like Christ for us on the cross in the temple of God, turning to God in trust and God sends salvation, right? In Hezekiah's day, the salvation will be the destruction of Assyria. That's what then chapter 10 verse 5 is about, about why God is going to destroy Assyria, even though Assyria is his vehicle of wrath. Now, again, uh, from chapter 10, verse 5, down to verse 11, God basically is just saying, I'm going to destroy Assyria. Yeah? Uh, Verse 12 will kind of act as a highlight along the way. Uh, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, 
He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Yeah. So Judah needs to be punished by God. They've broken the covenant. God's going to use Assyria to do this. But as soon as Assyria has done this, God's going to look at Assyria and say, now you think what? And he's going to say, I think pretty highly of myself. And God's going to say, okay, well, now it's your turn. Yeah. And then verse 13 and following is another kind of a section shift. For he says, who's the he? The king of Assyria. So now we have this monologue in which the king of Assyria is going to talk about himself and how great he is. And that monologue goes down through verses 13 and 14. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to break it down, but I'm going to read it. So here's his boast. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Right? Uh, I came, I saw, I conquered, I did what I wanted to do. Nobody in the world is as cool as me, the king of Assyria. For this, God is going to strike him. Uh, And it starts with then what we heard read a moment ago, where God asks the question that's very reasonable. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Right? When you put your axe down, who did the work? I mean, the axe is a tool that makes the work easier, but who did the work? It wasn't the axe. The axe would just lie there by itself without you. So the axe has no right to boast over you. Well, so how much then does any king have the right to boast over God? That's the real question, right? And that metaphor continues. Real question, how much do any of us have the right to be proud or haughty in God's sight? Well, as much as an axe does to the one who swings it or the saw Rest of the verse, magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod could wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not, you could maybe think of it, made of wood, right? The staff is made of wood. It just lies there. I pick it up. I'm not made of wood. So who's really doing the work? And again, this is about who's really doing the work. Well, God's doing the work. This is so important, Lutherans. Jesus is in charge of all of it, all the time, always for your good. Always. He's doing the work. And so at the end of the day, if you end up being the conqueror of nations, as this guy, you know, king of Assyria was, not very many of us doing conquering these days, though. It's tough business to get into. Yeah. But if you happen to be the conqueror of nations, all you can say is God gave it to me. God put me here for a reason. For such a time of this, I have come into this whatever glory it is. So, praise be to Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you. And what can I do with it for my neighbor? But that's not what the king of Assyria is doing. He's saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. All right. Verse 18, excuse me, 16. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. I mean, the short of it is that the armies of Assyria are going to be destroyed, right? And this is what happens when the angel armies come over the wall of Jerusalem and ransack the Assyrian army in a single night. Well, apparently it had to do with the wasting sickness in some way, the way the angels fought that night. 
Uh, and but there's fire involved under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire that's not a good thing that's a bad thing he's got this tower set up made of wood god's going to light a match at the bottom yeah burn up the foundation it's all going to fall down and that foundation that will be the danger i should say that that attack on the foundation of assyria will be the faith of israel Right? Verse 17, the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Yeah? God will save Jerusalem by the might of his word in a single day. He does that with Hezekiah, but do please see how this is all fulfilled in the day of Golgotha, huh? where God struck down the real arrogant and haughty one, our old evil foe, where he put him in his place once and for all, lighting a fire underneath him that will burn for all eternity. We call that hell. And Jesus made it possible for the devil to be chained to eternal hell with the king of Assyria as a picture to help us see what that would mean in our own way of living and thinking. Yeah in human terms. Yeah? So that verse 18 and 19, still more of just the taking away of the king of Assyria, uh, the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy. Right? Everything he got that he thinks is so good, it's all going to turn to ash. Yeah? It's all going to crumble. It's all going to fade with time. Both soul and body. And this is talking about his kingdom, I think, but then also himself, and he does die uh, very shortly after the assault on Jerusalem. Uh, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. I mean, this is, again, the nation of Assyria is going to vanish the way a guy gets sick and he's dead in a couple months, right? And that, that does happen, right? And if you ever watch a loved one go through that, it's, they change. It changes them as they walk toward death, right? It gets, they, they look weak. They look unwell. Huh? And so this is what's going to happen to this, this great kingdom. God's going to do it to them. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Right? So the glory of Assyria is this great forest, and there'll be so much of that glory left that if it were trees, a kid could count it on his fingers. Yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's this statement of God against the boast of the Assyrian king. Verse 20 now is going to more summarize what this means. Uh, in that day, right, the day that God saves Jerusalem, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. Remember, they asked Assyria to help them, right? They asked the world kingdom, the devil's kingdom, to help them. They got struck in return. When God destroys Assyria at the gates of Jerusalem, now the people will no longer lean on this fake hope of the world kingdom, but they will lean on the Lord, it says. They will lean on Jesus. So the whole point of the assault on Jerusalem by Assyria, as far as God is concerned, was to create faith in the hearts of the people. And in that day, he says, it will happen. Uh, they will, again, lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Right? No more lies. Verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. There's a, the church is right there. To be those called out is to be the remnant, the leftover, those who through the curse, which is going to destroy this planet and send it to hell, will remain on the other side because we're inside the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Verse 22, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Uh, This is a verse that really is worth just slowing way, way down on. It has like three ideas in it. Again, the first one is this remnant. God is doing all of his punishing in order to bring about repentance, which leads to the call of faith, which leads to him saying, yes, I'll save you. Even though he's definitely doing this, it's a small, narrow way and few are going to find it, right? Uh, Even though you count the sand in the sea, only a small handful of that would be what actually is going to be converted to the faith through, again, God's wrath in any given time. It it happened in Jerusalem. They were saved, but only a few. Um, It happened in the days of Jesus' ascension, where out of the Jews, many Christians were created. They became Christians, but it wasn't all of them. It wasn't the majority, right? Today, in a time when it looks like the churches of America are really flailing about, trying to latch on to anything except for the word of God in order to establish themselves. Nonetheless, you must believe 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal, and they're not all going to St. Paul Lutheran Church. They're all over the country and the world right now, but it's a small group compared to the elite rulership that tells you what you're supposed to think all the time and is running all the conversations through their talking devices. Yeah, It's a small group compared to those who are in charge of the world kingdom. That's the first point there uh, in in verse 22. Destruction is decreed is the second point. Like what the big group is also hungry for, it's going to blow up in their face. Now specifically, he's talking about Jerusalem's going to be punished for their unbelief. And he has said it's going to happen. There's no turning back from it. Yeah. But we can see from that destruction of Jerusalem, God's promise to destroy this world. He's going to destroy this world. Destructions are decreed. There's no turning back for it. It's going to come. And any attempt to save this world from his destroying of it is to fight against him. Now notice how the destruction that's decreed is also overflowing with righteousness. Like, if this isn't bad news, it kind of shows us our sin here. Now, God says, I'm going to destroy the world. And we're like, that's bad news. And it's actually good news. It's good news that he's going to destroy the evil world. It will overflow with righteousness when he casts the devil and all his angels into hell. This is the hope of all the cosmos. Huh? What is weird is how convinced we are that we need this burning stink pile. What is weird is how compelled we are to try to store up more of it for tomorrow, I guess. Because it won't be for 100 years from now, usually. Right? Usually. In fact, most of us, our names will barely be remembered 100 years from now. Maybe by our great-grandchildren. Maybe. Maybe not. Right? So what are we all storing up? What are we all working for? It seems so powerful in the moment, but again, destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. And it means an end of Assyria, to be sure. But that 
ending of Assyria is a picture of the ending of the devil's power, which then, again, we can apply for ourselves to the end of the world, right? to the end of the world. Um, to know this is coming, to live with this knowledge is not overflowing with wickedness. It's, it's overflowing with righteousness. It's a hopeful idea here. Yeah. Uh, verse 24 then says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Huh? So uh, if you're in Jerusalem and Assyria hasn't attacked yet, and you're hearing Isaiah preach that, well, Assyria is going to attack and they're going to destroy all this stuff and only a remnant is going to be left. But what should you do? Well, um, you should not fear when it hurts, when it comes, when you see it. Don't be afraid. God told you ahead of time it's going to happen. Huh? You know ahead of time you're going to die. You know ahead of time the stuff you buy is going to wear out. You know ahead of time that the world is going to end. All of that yeah, gives you the ability to, to stand with confidence. It shouldn't surprise you, right? There's no need to be surprised by the bad things when they happen. There's no need to be afraid of the pain and the trial when you're in the midst of it. Because again, God has planned it and he's walking you through it to a better eyesight, to a, a greater heart. We're going to skip over verses uh, 25, 26, and 27. And uh, I just kind of, I'm going to read out loud verses 28 through uh, 32. It, it's going to sound like a bunch of names you don't know. And, and it is. It's a bunch of names you don't know. All of these names are small cities, settlements, towns in Jerusalem, excuse me, in Judah and Benjamin. Now, I don't have a map. Out. Would you believe we're working on making maps to put out there so I can start pointing to stuff? Um, we don't have it out there yet. So, so. Drawn on the wall behind me, you know, northern kingdom, southern kingdom is, is mostly Judah, Simeon's inside of it, but also Benjamin tends to be with the south, and it's right on the border then between north and south, right? So all of these cities here, they start with one on the border between Benjamin and Ephraim, and Ephraim's the one that's been fighting, you know, in, in the midst of all of this, attacking Benjamin. Um, right at that point, there's a city that starts, and it's going to just hit city after city after city over about a 30-mile stretch, moving closer every time to Jerusalem's gates. Right. And I, I can't do it well enough uh, from, like, if you imagine an army that's starting in Chicago, and we know they're coming this way, and we're, we're saying, you know, they've gotten to, and I don't know it well enough, they got to O'Hare, right? Uh, and then they got to um, uh, Bolingbroke. That's the wrong way, though. See, I, I lived in Naperville, so my, my Chicago map is all, all over the place. But can you imagine up to 90, stop by stop by stop, right? And that army keeps getting closer, and that army keeps getting closer, and that army keeps getting closer. You know now it's coming toward you. That's what this section is, is trying to make you feel, okay? He has come to Aith, right? The army is there on the border of Benjamin. He has passed through Migran. At Micmash, he stores his baggage, right? He's leaving the guys who are not going to fight behind, but uh, he's still going on. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled all the while. Closer to Jerusalem, closer to Jerusalem. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight, right? The people who are hearing the news that the army is coming, they're beginning to flee their homes. 
right? So this whole little town has been emptied before they get there. The inhabitants of Gibbon flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem, right? So he gets to the closest place to where he's going to make his assault from, and he stands and he plans to destroy, right? It's like a commercial for destruction, you know? Uh, But the goal is, is to get you emotional about the idea, which it's hard to do without knowing what those names mean. I mean, if you just come across a chapter like this in the Bible by itself, it's going to be like, what on earth is all of that talking about, right? So again, now you know for Isaiah chapter 10, it's talking about the march of an army closer and closer to Jerusalem in very visceral terms, yeah? And so the doom has come to the gates. It's the moment of total darkness when no one can save you. And then, verse 33, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. All of that saying the same thing. I like the the first idea it gives. So now imagine again that this army is trees. We talked about it being a forest earlier. You compare it to a forest. You get this surrounded by these vicious man-eating trees or whatever. And out of the temple comes God with a giant axe and just lops off the top of the entire thing. Right at the moment when it looked like the power was at its height, at that moment, God snaps his fingers and says, sit down. More than that, crash. Uh, And Assyria does. Assyria will. Story's not over yet. But what I want you to see then is how this overlaps, not only with the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, where to everyone who was watching, it looked like the Messiah had lost, to also what's going on right now with the way your world is, your life, whatever it is that's in your heart that's bugging you so much and just doesn't seem like you can possibly surpass or fix it. God also is right on the other side of all of this, waking you up to see the end of the world and believe that the end of the world is good, that it has been achieved as a new fruit in the resurrection of Jesus Christ And that it is only a matter of time until you get to experience this physically. And if he should tarry, this is important. If he should tarry so that you die while yet waiting, know that he will bring your faith to desire that death. You'll be ready to go home. Because you will, well, you will see what a lie this current world kingdom is. At a certain point, you say, I just won't mind. I won't mind laying down my load. I won't mind falling asleep in Jesus. Because I know at the right time, he's going to lop the bow, the top, off of my grave too. And so I'm going to walk out of that grave and dwell in Jerusalem as the remnant should be with all the promises of blessing and glory and innocence and all of that. All right, so Isaiah chapter 10, that's about half the chapter. You got a good overview of it. It doesn't really end with good news in the sense that it's talking about Assyria being destroyed, which is 
actually really good news, yeah, but it, it seems weird. It's very warlike and heavy. Um, but if you can put yourself in the story where you're the one Assyria is trying to destroy, and then you can see that that's actually still what's happening. The current world power, the current mindset of the world, uh, the Germans used to call it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, hasn't changed. And human nature, it hasn't changed. So you're still right in the midst of it, and it's got the same God with the same promises, the same power, the same will. And all of that, again, is to, to lift you up, call you sons, as Paul said a little while ago. In the name of Jesus, amen.